and welcome to the Geek Night In, episode 63. Hooray! I'm your host, Laura, and I am here this week with Gemma Thompson. Hello! And someone else, too. It's Kate! Woo! Hello! Hooray! We're all here and we're going to do a show today, so anywhere particular that anyone wants to start on talking about geeky stuff this week? Ermigard Star Wars? Again? Ermigard Star Wars. So, I've not seen it. <laughs> Okay. Well, I've, I've, like, I've seen Star Wars, but I've not seen the trailer, so you will both have to describe it to me. Okay, um, we, we can talk about the trailer itself in a minute, but there is an aspect that I think will appeal to Kate as someone who's not seen the trailer. Um, I'm going to sum this up as simply as possible. This is the second consecutive Star Wars film with a, let's say, 20-ish year old female protagonist. Yeah. Um, Dude bros on the internet have decided that Star Wars is now a forever ruined SJW franchise that is forever ruined and their tears fuel me for eternity. Well, that's all we've ever wanted, really. I, I, I'm just so happy. I'm like, oh god, all of the like the nerdy exclusive white boys that tend not to like um, other people coming into nerddom mm-hmm. are swearing off Star Wars and that's fine by me. Why somebody was like, oh, there's, you know, in the foreseeable future, there are no Star Wars movies with um, a male protagonist. And I pointed out that every single Star Wars movie before episode seven had a male protagonist. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, first of all, the first six are all male protagonists. And I can point out one in the foreseeable future. The standalone Han Solo movie, which has been cast, has a male lead. So there you go. Like, based on... Like there's been six movies with um with male protagonists. Three of them sucked. So <laughs> it's not like they can say, oh well, you know, it's how it should be because I, it shouldn't. I, I do like using the very small pool of data to make up like correct but also kind of bullshit facts to annoy those kind of people on the internet. Like um the male fronted Star Wars films only have a fifty percent rate of being good films. Whereas exactly. the female-fronted ones have a 100% success rate of being good films. <laughs> Therefore, it is the safer option to just have female protagonists forever. Well, I used to live with a statistician, and he would certainly agree with that. So. Well, it, it's a very small number of data points from which to extrapolate, but the evidence mm. is there. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of diversity, it's also an interesting trailer, given it's revealed to a lot of people's surprise that Forrest Whitaker is in it as well. Yeah, Forrest which Whitaker. Is a very interesting casting. Forrest choice. Whitaker seems to be some kind of like, mar- like space marine slash, like kind of like if Yoda was a space marine is the best way yeah. I can describe his character, and it seems really <laughs> cool. Yeah, he is like the the elder, the wizard in, in that sort of um, the heroes. Yeah, the protagonist story but kind of he's, trope. He's also just about ready to put on like some kind of space helmet and go out blasting lasers at spaceships or something. Yeah, and he's a really interesting accent and delivery. It's a very intriguing sort of moment, I think, when he, he pops up on screen. Yes, because yeah. he has a line in that trailer that I thought was really interesting that like people are arguing over one of the words that I think is very interesting, but it's something along the lines of, what will they? What will you do if they catch you? What will you do when they break you? And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. that's that's some cool dialogue you got there. Because I like, I wasn't yeah. I wasn't at all interested in Rogue One until I saw this trailer, and I was like, yep, yep, I'm on board with with uh with like twenty ish lady rebellious type that is 
you know, fighting the system and probably blowing up another planet-sized moon, then again, there is a fair criticism to be made that it's another Star Wars film about a planet-sized moon, but... <laughs> yeah, but it, as far as I can tell, it's the original Death Star. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is actually, you know, that line where they say many Bothans died no, to no. information. I made this same mistake and the internet would not let me forget I'd made this mistake. That is the oh. Death Star 2. Apparently the Bothans that die, the Bothans that die are getting the plans to the Death Star 2. Now, I made the mistake oh. of asking, well, are we going to see the Bothans in this film? And I had like three hours of people tweeting me, no, they're Star Wars, this is the Death Star 2. I'm like, well, shut up, okay, fuck off. But, um, <laughs> yeah, apparently, like, in the extended universe, there used to be a canon. A, a lot of the reason that, like, all the guys are upset about this is there was a, a character called Kyle Katarn, who used to be the canon, at least in the books, person who got the original Death Star plans. And they're like, mm. oh no, you replaced this male character that we wanted to see with a female character. Ah! But that being said, the trailer looked really cool. Um, I liked, yeah. I liked that soundtrack that basically seemed to be the Imperial March with like some kind of like dubstep layering. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know what this is, but it sounds really cool and I want it. <laughs> and I like the scenery and particularly the moment at which I realized they're running through Canary Wharf Station. <laughs> they've done the, the Jubilee Line extension stations have been dressed up as the inside of a Death Star or something. Yeah. <laughs> Stormtroopers running through the tube and I'm just like, just nerdgasm. Yeah, this is everything that Gemma could want out of that. Sorry, yeah, speaking yeah. of the tube. Speaking of the tube, there is on Channel 4, I think, and I think it will be available on like 4 on Demand if you can get that in Sweden. There's a really good documentary on the tube at the moment, Gemma, that I think you'd really like. Oh, yeah, I think it must have been the one that my husband found, and we've actually got queued up to watch at some well, point. Well, there's two. There's one that was on BBC4, which is about the history of the tube, which I've, um, I've got queued, like, ready. And then there's another one, and it's about the people who work there rather than, like, mm. specifically the tube. But it's really interesting, like, especially working in customer service, but just, like, the stuff that they deal with and, like, how proud they are. It's really cool. And also, I found out a fun fact from my mum because she watched another program on the tube that and you I, you will verify this for me i feel Gemma. apparently because people couldn't read when um or not everyone could read when the first tube stations were built they made the tile very different <laughs> so that you knew where you were when you got out is that true yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's a cool thing and the cool thing is actually as well, if you go to Oldwich Station, uh, the one that's closed, but they have the open days for, they actually, because Oldwich was only open for about seven years, uh, after that, TFL actually used the walls in Oldwich to test out tiling patterns for other stations. So you can go there and see the tiling patterns for Oxford Circus, for example. Cool. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's a similar documentary that was done um, about six years ago, I think, on BBC, just called The Tube. And similarly, yeah. it was a lot of the um, behind-the-scenes information and talking to the people who worked there. But like particularly interesting, like I remember the fluffers, the the cleaners who go down and clear all the tubes from uh, clearing mostly dust, like when the trains are shut down and stuff. It's just really interesting chats with the people who are taking such pride in their work and stuff. It's yeah, it's, it's lovely. And there's there were um, lots of people from sort of all over the world who had either moved quite recently or had lived in um, England for like most of their life. And they were just like so proud of the various things that they did, like whether it was selling tickets or cleaning or um, engineers and stuff. And it's like, 
the tube does get a bad rap, bad rap, I think. Um, especially, you know, it is frustrating. But like stuff about the ticket offices closing, they were discussing, and there was a bit mm. where a woman who um, her ticket office had just closed and it caused loads of problems, and she met like the big boss at like an event, and she asked him to come down on the Saturday and see it, and he was like, "But that's my day off. I have a life," and she was like, "What? <laughs> you?" you we're expected to deal with it. I want you to come and see it so you can see for yourself. And he was, you know, he just gave her that corporate bullshit line, which happens in all corporate bullshit places where they don't actually, <laughs> and they just want you to stop. It was really interesting. So I recommend it. I, I still mm. find the tube countlessly fascinating when I'm using it in London because it's, it's a well, it's a relatively well organized network of, like multiple layers and levels of pipes that are just like somehow meeting up with each other but not clashing into each other and just the thought that I can get from like across London through these interconnected underground tubes without ever surfacing is Mm. a thing that like every so often I have to stop and think I really shouldn't take this for granted somehow humans made this happen yeah, and I, I find it gets really interesting at the moment uh, in both Stockholm and London because uh, naturally I'm watching a lot of the Crossrail videos. Oh, um, naturally. There's a YouTube channel devoted to the sorts of documentaries they're doing, and I, I do recommend them because there's a lot of exploration uh, both from Crossrail themselves and also the Londonists who are a good YouTube channel. They do like... Uh, various aspects of London, like usually a cultural aspect to them. But they'll go down into like Tottenham Court Road, for example, and they'll be showing like this is the new station. And by the way, tube trains are running like 30 centimetres the other side of this wall. And you just you're just aware of how many tunnels and escalators and stuff there are down below yeah, London. It's, it's one of the things where like at the second you you stop and pay attention to like, OK, I just got off this train how many stairs am I actually going up or down before I reach another train? Remarkably few. You don't go very far up or down at all, and suddenly you're in another track. And yeah, I don't think about it too much. Yeah, because else I'll just I'll just cry on this on the platform. <laughs> no, I just get I just get amazed by them. Like somehow you did this and didn't screw it up. Well done. Yeah, and actually more than that, Victorians did it. Um, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You did this that. with no technology. <laughs> Yeah, along with all the underground sewers and stuff. And admittedly, the sewers are now, like, massively over capacity. That's why they're building Thames Tideway and such. Which, yeah. again, is an interesting project. It's like, we're building this massive tunnel underneath the Thames purely for sewage. Because uh, otherwise yeah. we get, like, like the way the River Fleet was basically com- shoved down a pipe basically to combine with sewage and then it's yeah. whenever there's a storm it flows out directly into the thames and they're all yeah. they're trying to avoid that none of these are things you want to happen um mm. in terms of things that we do want to happen i'm trying to make a segue and it's not quite there but it's close enough uh you know what <laughs> i want to happen more films to be made that are like zootropolis which i saw today Ah, kind oh, of. This is the one that's called way. Zootopia in Europe. Yes, it's it's Zoo Zootopia. It's Zootopia, I think, in like America and Europe, but in the UK it's called Zootropolis, and I've been trying to drill into my head that that's what that film is called in this country. Because any time, yeah, I've, I think it was a licensing thing. Yeah, any time I've seen it in like that, I've seen it at like anywhere on Tumblr or Twitter or anything. It's always Zootopia, and I'm like, that's not what the film's called here. I must remember that. But yeah, that film about the animals that have a society. 
a much better film than I expected it to be. Like, I'd heard it was a very good Disney Pixar film. It sounded like it was about furries. A lot of people have assumed that, and that's not so much, but I can totally see how this, like, could inadvertently create a new a new era of furries, but that's its own separate new thing from this film. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I think this is going to end up being, like, this is going to be a big thing that a lot of furries 20 years from now look back on. That being said, uh, Zootropolis is a, or Zootopia, it's a really interesting film about a couple of different very very current and very relatable themes. Um, it's got a lot to do with themes of minority groups deciding, hey, I'm not going to let the fact that no one in my minority group has ever achieved this before hold me back. I'm going to push for push for my dreams regardless of whether like other people think it's reasonable. It's got themes of um, discrimination and the various ways that like society is negatively impacted as a whole if we allow discrimination to be a driving force in how we sort of divide between people and generally it has some really interesting conversations to be had about things like um about the use of language and how language is sometimes okay for some groups to use for themselves but not other groups to to use against them without checking it's got mm. it's got all these really interesting thing themes going on while being wrapped in a very tightly paced and well acted script that like has a plot that's nothing to do with these themes the plot itself is much more of this sort of um, like a heist crime drama. You've got a couple of days to work out what the solution to this crime is, otherwise you're off the force for good. And the whole resolution to the crime that's going on and being investigated is fantastic. I was completely caught off guard. I did not expect it to end it the, w- the way it did. And I just came out of that film like that was hilarious and well-written and well-paced and well-acted and dealt with some very current themes in very sort of very nice ways that aren't too subtle but not too in your face it's a really bloody good film Hmm. i I found it interesting that yeah whenever i've asked people like (laughs) all my fellow clan mates who went and saw the film without me because i was in san francisco which is fair enough um whenever they spoke to me about the film they explained that it was never about the plot it was about like oh this moment where uh the rabbits who are much shorter than say all these Mm. giraffes and bears and things can't use the lift because they can't reach the buttons and just little analogs like that it is really interesting the sort of like the the very small ways in which it uses the characters interacting with the world to tell those stories and to point out those like those places that the world doesn't always uh, accommodate for people who are not the norm. Mm. Um, Definitely seeing, like, the police station that this very small rabbit goes to work at was clearly not designed with people that were physically like her in mind. And they make very little in the way of accommodations, and she has to sort of really fight to get be taken seriously within that job. And it even sort of, like... It's really interesting that, that the film even goes as far as to, like initially hint that like this rabbit who's dreamed of being a police officer all their life only or at least to some degree gets the job 
because they are a minority group and like the politicians are trying to make a push for diversity and then it like it looks at the various pros and cons of that and the sort of like look don't care how i got here i'm going to do my job properly and it's it's just very interesting Hmm. it's a deeply interesting film (laughs) I also saw a, a kind of meme thing going around on Twitter, uh, which basically had a grid of, I think, eight other cartoon rabbits all using telephones and using, like, basically, they're holding a human sized phone to the side of their head, despite the fact their ears are on top. Whereas Zootopia <laughs> has a Bluetooth earpiece, and it's the first time a rabbit has been shown being able to actually use a phone properly. <laughs> Yeah, I just I just liked that twist as well. Yeah, there is a lot of very interesting stuff. Um, like I think one of the, I I don't know. There's there's a lot of very interesting ways that while these are clearly like anthropomorphic animals, they are still very clearly animals and the animals that they're meant to be. Mm. Also, I don't want to talk too much about the film in specifics because there's a lot of stuff that, a lot of stuff that the trailer does not give away as part of the film. I think the blending of anthropomorphic animal but still very much their base animal is very very subtly and interestingly handled Hmm. so yeah i really highly recommend zootropolis slash zootopia it's a really good film Hmm. yeah uh what, what what else have we got to uh talk about this week um kate you read a book Oh, I'm reading a book. You're reading a book. You're reading a book. Let me guess. Is it a history book? Yes. <laughs> I Okay, I made it sound to the listeners like I had guessed that off the cuff. I know what this book is about, so I kind of was a little unfair there. Kate, why are breaking the you... fourth wall, Laura. I know, breaking I'm breaking wall. the fourth wall. I know what the book is already. I, I made Kate look bad. Kate, what's your book about? <laughs> it's not exactly a stretch, though, to assume that it's a history well, book. Well, exactly. <laughs> Um, I am reading a book which is fabulous called The Creation of Anne Boleyn by Susan Bordeaux. Um, not spelt like Bordeaux the place, it's just B-O-R-D-O, so that's interesting. Um, but it's basically, it's like totally up my street because it's about, um, the narrative of Anne Boleyn and her, her as a character kind of thing. And, um, this person has obviously read pretty much everything to do with Anne Boleyn like there's been plays ever since she died basically and onwards Shakespeare like Shakespeare wrote a play about Henry VIII in his histories I didn't know that oh like Um, Shakespeare wrote so many hundreds of plays that no one knows about like he's written plays on so many topics um in his histories like obviously Richard III and like um various Henrys but I didn't know that he'd written one on Henry VIII but she's not in it much um because she was obviously Elizabeth's mum so she is in it but because Elizabeth was like "Uh, who I don't I just popped out of my father's loins like I'm so Tudor it hurts um so she that play like hasn't influenced as much as others but like loads of books about her like right up to the Tudors and the other Berlin girl and um Wolf Hall and things like this woman has obviously read everything and um watched everything so that's really interesting and she's just talking about kind of you know Anne of a Thousand Faces and how many different representations she has but I knew I knew the book was for me because in like the first paragraph she just like throws shade at David Starkey so I was like, oh, meant to be, because I hate David Starkey. Um, and I'm also reading or rereading Richard the Third because I read it in school and remember thinking it was crap. 
and then I watched The White Queen, um, which is a, uh, the TV show, which is um, comes from three Philippa Gregory books, The White Queen, The Red Queen, and The Kingmaker's Daughter. So I was like, oh, I'll rewatch, I'll reread Richard III. And it is good because it's got like whole pages of people just throwing insults at each other because everyone's so grumpy and horrible. Um, and also there's the Richard III film, which I'm going to watch, which I didn't realise, but has Robert Downey Jr. in it hmm. <laughs> as um, brother of the Queen of Elizabeth Woodville. Um, I think, he, yeah, he does he die? I mean, they all—they're all dead, you know. Spoilers, everyone. Knows. <laughs> um, it happens a lot in history, I gather. I know. It's like get a new plot device, guys. If you don't like death, don't study history because they, <laughs> it's happened to all of them. Um, so yes, I've been very reedy this this week. Um, I haven't. I've been trying to reread some. Um, historical fiction that i read ages ago but can't really remember and i'm also planning at some point if i find the time to reread all of harry potter because oh, I, how yeah wonderful. yeah that's, well, that's the thing i need to do someday well i watched chamber of secrets the other day and chamber of secrets like the first three films are the best films if you ask me because they are just so fun and then we kind of hit an era in filmmaking of everything having to be really serious and like Zack Snydery. So four, five and like onwards, they're sometimes good, but they're just not as fun as the first two. So I'm, I really watched Chamber of Secrets and I was like, Oh, I've forgotten how good a film this was. So I'm very excited to reread the books because they are all fun and a bit ridiculous, but there we go. Uh, I think that's pretty much all I've done this week except work. Um, yeah, work, work can kind of take up a lot of time in everyone's life because work is a fun, horrible, fun thing. I'm also studying tourism at the moment, so that's Ew, me. Tourism. Oh. Uh, uh, Gemma, what, what, what's your week been like? What have you done? Uh, I'm starting up a business, so I'm fairly work focused as well. Um, oh, I. Going back to Star Wars a bit, though, I am now officially a Padawan. Yes, I just realised we haven't talked about this, and that would have been a very good time to talk about it, wouldn't it? Uh, how, <laughs> how does it feel to be a Padawan? It feels awesome, and it, it's not least because of the ceremony. So I am, of course, referring to lightsaber combat, which I haven't spoken about for a while. Um, but we had an awesome uh, kind of seminar session uh, last weekend at the time of recording. Um, our uh, orders master... His brother is actually the current world champion at Ludo Sport Ooh. Lightsaber Combat. And so we've met him once before. He came uh, a few weeks after we started up, really, for one of our outdoor summer training sessions. And it was kind of a general, like, Swedish time of it, because we were out in a park. We were grilling korf out in the... That's, like, hot dog sausage kind of thing. Um, that was all good and, like, relaxed training. But that was also when there were only about nine of us in the clan, um since then three other clans have started up we have two extra instructors who went away trained came back and now have their own clans so basically there are now like 28 people at this seminar session which is actually also the first time all of us have gotten together normally we train in groups of about nine or ten um and yeah we all got together so that uh our world champion friend um could train us in dueling techniques and it was all about um kind of uh putting fear aside and well not not so much putting fear aside but embracing it um and it, it's it must have been so tempting to go into like jedi and sith philosophy on that because 
I, canonically they approach it in different ways yeah um, now can i just say i feel really bad about this but i've been hearing uh, you've been telling the story of like oh yeah we met this really good person at ludo sport and in my head it's just like what was it like to meet yoda <laughs> you have basically met the the yoda of ludo sport <laughs> uh, yeah he's actually a sith knight so there's anything oh. but yoda however oh. he does practice elements of the same style as yoda so he practices, I, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself at this point. I think it's Ataru is a technique of which is much about leaping around in order to uh, unbalance your opponent. There are no defensive moves. It's all about being all over the place. And this is exactly what Yoda does. So in a way, he is kind of Yoda. And I hadn't really thought of that at the time. Now that now I cannot unthink it. Yeah. Uh, also, I have one question of one thing that, like, the prequels suggest something about Padawans that I want to know if you were forced to endure. Um, every Padawan we see that is a human in the Star Wars prequels has to have that terrible looking rat tail thing of, like, hair. <laughs> Did you have to get the weird rat tail thing? No. <laughs> no, you weren't forced to have a weird rat tail and, like, the rest of your head shaved and just this one awkward looking bit of hair. No, thank goodness. Um, I am very glad that Ludo Sport did not make you do that, though I do question yeah. the legitimacy of your Padawan, see now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wear a belt, but it's more in, in common with like general martial arts. Like the, the, the Star Wars element kind of stops and starts at the lightsaber, to be honest. Um, I, I, think this, I think the lightsaber and calling you a Padawan is pretty, pretty <laughs> deep in the Star Wars element. And also, you talk about being uh, Jedi and Sith. I'm pretty sure you're pretty deep in the Star Wars elements, so I don't know how far it goes. A little bit. However, if the Star Wars <laughs> universe had a Padawan graduation ceremony, same thing by cows, it'd be awesome. Because basically all that happened was, like, the reason I point out there are 28 people at this event uh, is because I, I was named a Padawan along with another member of my clan um, at the end of this session. And so we had the whole order around us, basically all armed with lightsabers, like... We had to stand in the middle of the circle, these people, and have the speech given to us by our master, all in Italian, so I don't really know what it meant. <laughs> um, but, like, welcoming us to the order and the rank of Padawan. But, but and it's then totally cheered. about martial arts. It's not about Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> then everyone cheering and, like, the rest of our clan rushing towards us and, like, celebrating and generally being quite Viking about it. Um, that, that was quite a rush. So yeah, if Star Wars were anything like that, I think it would be a lot more upbeat than the, particularly the Jedi solemnity thing. I, I like to think the Sith ceremonies are a bit more like that. It's like, <laughs> if somebody gets risen up in the ranks, okay, we'll ignore the fact that basically Sith ascension through ranks is by assassination. Um, yeah, I'd like yeah, to think I'm, I'm also glad you haven't had to do that to uh, rise through your ranks. No, I didn't have to assassinate anybody yet. Yet. We'll, we'll see when you try and become a master. Um, yes. Uh, so what else have, I'm trying to think what else I've done this week um, oh I have been doing a bunch of stuff with virtual reality which has been really cool this week um, mm. I have a bunch of virtual reality headsets in my office which is like a new thing for me and uh, the, this is going to get really nerdy and tech specific but I got really excited about the fact that virtual reality has like offered me a solution for downscaling the number of monitors in my office while still being able to use a multi-monitor setup. Oh, this is the thing you were saying about last week. Yeah, and I, I, well, I talked a little bit about it last week, but I've added something to my setup since the, the episode last week. So basically, I've been using a program called Virtual Desktop, which allows you to 
basically like create monitors in like floating in virtual space while like oh I'm sat on the moon while I work on this hundred inch 1080p monitor that's curved around me and whatnot and it's a really cool little piece of um of of tech it's it's been really nice for me because I struggle a lot with things on my peripheral distracting me from focusing on work properly and being able to completely shut out all of my senses other than what I'm working on has been really helpful but the one limitation to this to this virtual reality uh, desktop program is that you can only have as many monitors as you have physical monitors connected and they will take each of them will take on like the resolution specs and whatnot of the monitor you've got plugged in so if you wanted to have three giant floating virtual monitors in space you'd need to have three monitors plugged in um basically i found a little device that was like 15 pound to buy online that's a little tiny dongle that you plug into like a display port on the back of your computer and it will trick your computer into thinking that there's another monitor there even though it's just a little 15 pound dongle and as that such a really specific yeah, thing to make a dongle it's for. such a weird thing and like it's apparently something to do with like um setups for virtual machines or something i don't really understand how it's what it's its intended use case is but what Actually, it does make sense yeah yeah but what <laughs> it what it does have a real use for is i can pl- i think i spent like a total of like 30 35 pound on a couple of these stuck them in the back of my computer and i'm now no longer like my office is tiny i no longer need three physical monitors because one monitor is enough for 90% of my work, and if I do need multiple monitors, I can stick on the VR headset and I now have two fake additional monitors I can I can look at. And that's been really stupid and nice in that like I can downscale the number of monitors in my office because I can just look at them in virtual reality instead without having to take up office space for 90% of my day. That is really cool. Yeah, so that's a weird thing that, like, VR did for me this week. Also, like, I kind of skimmed past this, but I'm realising that as someone with Asperger's who, like, I really struggle with a lot of sensory stuff distracting me from focusing sometimes on work, having the ability to shut out everything that is not my my monitor and my work is a huge productivity booster for me. So, Hmm. yay, VR is actively becoming, like, a, a... productive part of my workflow which i did not expect a couple of weeks ago the one thing i wonder about actually is uh to what extent can you still use a keyboard with that um are you relatively proficient as a touch typer (laughs) Uh, halfway there Okay, so there are solutions for touch typing while in these setups if like if you're not a touch typer there are solutions First, there is a headset. There is a uh, a camera on the front of the headset, which you can basically like look at the video feed from that and have that somewhere on your on your screen, so mm. that if you need to see the camera, you can glance at like, oh, that's where my hands are on the keyboard, and type while looking at the little thing if you need to, if you struggle with that. Otherwise, you can basically get the headset to try and pick out like shapes of things in like in front of it and create them as a wire mesh frame that floats Mm. in the world so you might not be able to see the letters that are on each keys but you'll be able to see the layout of your like the the shapes of keys on your keyboard and where they are 
So actually, that would be really useful because one of the things, uh, like, I kind of do touch typing and I've experimented with it a little bit. I tend to like look halfway between my monitor and keyboard and like just not focus and text happens. But one of the things I have is that for the past two and a half years, I've been using Nordic keyboard layouts. And so actually a VR overlay, which could tell me where the keyboard is, just where the keys are. But that sounds useful for when I switch back to UK, as I do every yeah. now and then. Well, it's it's interesting in that it's it's a set it's a tool that's basically designed for like if your cat runs in the room while you're doing virtual reality, you'll see like a wireframe <laughs> of your cat walk past, and you know not to step on it. But it's useful for things like okay, where is my keyboard right now, and things like that. So it's mm. it's interesting. Like I'm good enough at touch typing, and I've thankfully got like um, little raised markers on some of the keys on my keyboard, so I know where to I know where to rest my index fingers because there's little raised bumps on my F and J key, and that's mm. enough for me to be able to like touch type pretty consistently. So yeah, that was that was cool. Um, <laughs> have we got anything else we want to talk about this week? No, I've been reading a couple of books. But What uh, books have you been reading, Gemma? Well, I've been getting back into Roger Zelazny. Have either of you read his work at all? No. Okay. He's, I guess he's kind of an obscure one, if you're not like particularly into sci-fi or fantasy. I'd never heard of him until I started picking up the books. Um, yeah, he's, he's an author who basically, up until recently, I'd only ever read The Chronicles of Amber, which is the thing he's mainly known for. It's, uh, I think it's six books set in this universe where basically there's this royal family dynasty who has the power to walk between dimensions and they have this central world amber. Um, and they can walk to different dimensions basically by just like, they'll go for a walk and they'll focus on some particular part of the scenery and focus upon it changing somehow and then the rest of the world will change around that and as they walk they walk between worlds and so they end up at like our world for example or like medieval fantasy worlds i really liked that as a, a concept and also its mirror world is really quite interesting um but I've, i picked up a couple of his books from a humble bundle sci-fi bundle uh that's a lot of bundle um uh quite recently and included some of his uh short stories and I've just been finding myself getting into the space where, like, I liked this author based on this one work. Like, I basically just really like this book. But now I'm realizing how much I like the author generally and the ways in which he creates worlds. And particularly given um, The Isle of the Dead, which is one of these. It's like a two-parter story in one package that I got in this bundle. Um, it's a, a story basically of a a guy who... Um, has been cryogenically frozen for a number of years, but emerges into a world where first contact has been made. There are alien civilizations in harmony and vague war with humanity, that kind of usual thing. But amongst, amongst all this, he's becoming engaged in a, an alien religion whose uh, numerous deities are basically tied in with the ability to terraform planets. And so it becomes a terraformer. And the book actually picks up towards kind of like he's already been terraforming for seemingly a century or something. He's massively rich and he there's this subplot of like murder threats and stuff, which is all kind of it's good, but it's uh, somewhat secondary, I think, to the, this main thing of like basically the, the author created this story of how um, 
worldscaping creates a legacy. And there was this really interesting moment where I sort of switched over to thinking, oh, this is like the author writing kind of like on their own experience and dealing with death and what it means to have a legacy of worlds behind you. And as a game designer, I was just sat there thinking, wow, <laughs> and really engaging with the work. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I have an, an ultimate like point for this, but I guess I was just saying that like... Uh, I've had the satisfaction of reading more from a, an author whose work I like and realizing that I can kind of get into the sort of stuff he does and that he has a thing and that I like it. Um, yeah. And I guess I could recommend Roger Zelazny to anyone who's interested in kind of worldscaping kind of fantasy and sci-fi narratives. Hey, um, yeah, if we've got anything else, or is that probably a good place for us to wrap up? I don't know what to say about that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds interesting, and that that's my only real addition to that sentence, which or group of sentences. Uh, Kate, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrap up this week? No, I do not think so. Fine, then in that case, I think we're probably ready to, to wrap up for a week, so... Uh, Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And thank you very much to everyone who's been on the show this week. Uh, time to do self-promotion. Jammer, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter as Raygun Goth and on GDCVault.com, where my panel, uh, Ripple Effect, How Women in Games Make a Difference, is free to view. So you can you can see me talking about the various work I do, along with uh, my fellow panelists who are all awesome inspirational people talking about uh yeah generally how games have reached out to uh like minority subcultures and how how you can create your unique communities off that and you can find it's like a pinned tweet on my twitter profile as well so yeah yeah that is a thing that you should all go look at uh kate when you are not here where can people find you on the internet at what katie underscore did woo Look look at that. You 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 all on brand. Um so yeah, you can find me everywhere at Laura K Buzz. That's Laura K Buzz on Twitter, Laura K Buzz on YouTube, Laura K Buzz on Patreon, LauraKBuzz.com. Thank you very much for listening. We'll have another episode for you again next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>